Thanks, Marika. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Some of you have uh, fought through uh, getting children ready to get here. Some of you fought through depression to get here. Some of you have come to church a second or third time in a day to get here. Some of you have come fighting through social anxiety to get here. Some of you through social anxiety, uh, even though this might be your first time at our church to get here. Um, and I just wanted to welcome you, and, and together, why don't we join together and praise God that he's brought us together and ask him to speak to us now. Let's, let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for each one here. We thank you for your goodness in gathering us and in strengthening us to come. Father, we, we praise you for the way in which you... Um, we praise you for the way in which you have... Um, uh, had mercy on us, brought us to know your son, Jesus. And we pray now as we, um, as we uh, come to hear him speak in his word, that you might bless us, that you might calm our hearts and our fears, that you might bring us together united, that you might bypass our anxieties and even our sinfulness and hardness of heart, that we might, Lord, be refreshed, given confidence and joy because of who you are and what you've done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are into Daniel chapter 5. Um, and it is kind of familiar territory once again. Another drama in the court of the king. Even we got repeats of the previous dramas in the court of the king. But, and, and the elements are familiar. And yet this time, what's interesting is that um, this is a, um, a, a... The differences are the most important, not the similarities. This is a, a sort of break in transmission. For starters, we've got a different king for the first time. Did you notice all of a sudden we've got this dude, Belshazzar? We're not talking about Nebuchadnezzar anymore. He's dead and gone, and his son Nabonidus has taken the throne. Now, this is the, this is the best we can guess at in terms of historical reconstruction because Nabonidus was away from Babylon for, for a number of years and for years at a time. So what's likely happening here is that Belshazzar is ruling while Nabonidus, Nebuchadnezzar's sort of biological son, is away. And while the cat's away, this mouse is playing. Where are we? Chapter 1. King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine, uh, perhaps more literally, in front of them, before them. 1,000 lords... And their plus ones, or twos, or threes, because after all, both wives and concubines are invited to this party, if you notice that in the text there. So that is a lot of people. That is a huge party while the parents are away. Big party at the house, parents are away. And in the most American college frat party thing that I think I've read in the Bible, he drank wine in front of them. Belshazzar is there out the front leading or doing his best to be the life of the party, leading it. It's pathetic. And as the wine takes its hold, Belshazzar decides that it will be a great idea to desecrate a foreign god's holy objects. And so in order to serve up the booze, he orders that the gold and the silver cups and the bowls from the temple in Jerusalem be brought. And his lords and their many, many ladies drink from them. And they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron and wood and stone. Now, 
this has got history to it. I mean, these are the gods that Israel worshipped while they were being unfaithful to Yahweh, their God. I mean, these are the gods that, that Isaiah ridiculed, saying, hold on, I mean, why are you worshipping a bit of stone? It's, it's a bit of stone. It, it can't do anything to help you. What, why are you making, why, if you've got a log and you cut it in half and you make one of the one bits of the log into uh, a god and you say, bow down to it and say, God, please save me. And the other half you throw into the fire saying, oh yeah, that's, ooh, that's ashing up nicely. That's what making me warm. It's crazy. See, these are the gods that brought judgment on Israel and Nebuchadnezzar was the one who was actually bringing that judgment because Israel should have known better. And that's going to be a theme for us, that they should have known better. Now, it's, it's strange because Belshazzar deliberately sent for these items. If you think about it, that's kind of a, a very specific thing. Like, why? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the whole world. There were nations upon nations worth of treasure in their treasury, all sort of, I'm sure, you know, beautifully allocated and everything. But, but why the vessels of the God of Israel? Why these, why these particular ones this particular night? I'm not quite sure, but it was a very specific order. Keep that in your head. Now, at that moment, with Belshazzar in full drunken swing, standing on the table up the front, trying to make the party happen, verse 5, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. A hand appears. If you remember the, the hand references to, um, to Nebuchadnezzar when he was throw, about to throw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into the fire, who can rescue you from my hand? And all of a sudden, a hand appears. And the king watched the hand as it wrote in verse 6. Uh, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, ancient languages and their euphemisms are a fascination of mine. I really love it when you sort of hear an ancient euphemism and you kind of know what it means. I'll let you in on what this one is. Knees knocking, literally Belshazzar's knot was untied. It's kind of an interesting one. When you feel, if you like, so you come undone, like, my knot was untied. Um, many have speculated that this meant that the strength of his ability to retain his bodily fluids was untied, that this is him so scared he has soiled himself. That's not certain. We don't know. But his knot was untied. His colour was changed. He was very, very affected by this. And to be honest, so far all it is is a hand. I mean, scary, yes. Weird, yes. But he is really freaking out. Again, another mysterious element. Why? Okay. He does the normal thing now. Back to the familiar. He calls for the by now customary consultation with the astrologers and the enchanters, bringing in the experts. The, these are the familiar bits of the story. And once again, the king can't understand the vision. Once again, the king promises lavish gifts and honours will be given to the person who can. And yet again, his experts can't. And so the king becomes more scared still. More scared than the earlier bit when his knot was untied. And as any underling of a tyrant knows, that's not good news for underlings. You've got a nervous tyrant, not good news. Don't want to be around him. And they start to become concerned as well because they've got no idea what to do either. Until, until some wisdom enters the room. Thankfully, there's someone in the room with a memory. The queen, 
This is pro probably Nabonidus's queen, so probably not one of Belshazzar's wives. Remember, the true king's away right now, and she comes to the rescue in this situation. Uh, and like Daniel, this queen is quite wise and tactful of speech, if you notice. May the king live forever, she says. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Call for Daniel, skipping to the end, and he'll tell you what the writing means. See, she's seen this scene before, and she knows how it's going to play out. And so, Daniel is brought again before the king. Now, it's sort of funny, like, why wasn't he there earlier with the astrologers? We don't know. Like, maybe Daniel lost his rank when the new king was installed, or maybe he simply got old and retired. Well, we, we really don't know, but the, Daniel makes the walk to the palace, and the king repeats back to Daniel what the queen said about him. It's kind of ironic, actually, because when, the, when he's talking about Daniel's reputation as a problem solver, he says, oh, but the queen tells me you can untie knots. <laughs> and as Daniel... Well, sorry. As, as Daniel's had offered to him before, Belshazzar, Belshazzar gives him the sales pitch. Honor and power, all yours, third highest in the kingdom, just, just solve my problem. And here's where Daniel does something that's a little unusual for him too. See, with Nebuchadnezzar, he was always tactful like the queen, wasn't he? Do you, do you remember when, when, when bad news came for the king, he'd say things like, oh, may this, may this message be for your enemies, O king. He would always find a way to, to, to demonstrate he cares about this king and, and, and try to f find it easier for him to hear and to know that Daniel was speaking in love. And yet, do you notice what Daniel says to Belshazzar? Verse 17. It's, it's pretty blunt. Keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. I don't want it. But, all right, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what this means but not until I give you a history lesson. Not until you see. Daniel then proceeds to summarize the events of chapters 2 to 4, the, the journey that Nebuchadnezzar went on with the Most High God. You know, how God gave him the kingship in the first place. Uh, the incredible honor and greatness that came with it. The way that the whole world feared Nebuchadnezzar so that he was like God to the world as God sets up kings when he wants to and takes them down when he wants to. So Nebuchadnezzar set up and took down anyone else below him that he wanted to. But when he got too big for his boots, when he became proud above his station, thinking himself to be that powerful without God, God humbled him. This is a story from last week where he became like an animal until he recognized that the Most High God is the one who raises up and brings low. He had it all taken away from him until he acknowledged and humbled his heart. And then Daniel turns, having given this history lesson, reminded him what, what happened to the great predecessor, the great Nebuchadnezzar who conquered the world. Verse 22, You are his successor, Belshazzar, and you knew. You knew all this. Belshazzar knew the whole time. He knew. When he took the vessels, he knew. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar's edict about the Most High God of Israel being the one whom he wish, who, who raises up whomever he wishes and can take down whoever he wishes. And yet he called for those cups. 
He knew when the queen was telling him all about Daniel and, hey, Daniel's really good at this. Daniel's resolved situations like this in the past. He knew about this. He knew the story. We're not sure if he knew that Daniel was the guy in the story, but he knew the story, Daniel says. This isn't accidental. This is hubris. Verse 23 says, Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives, even your girlfriends, drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand, but you didn't honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. See, this is the thing. This wasn't innocent. Belshazzar knew. And he didn't learn Nebuchadnezzar's lesson. He didn't learn from history. See, the writing's interpretation here, mene, mene, tekel, pasin. God has numbered your days. Like all of our days are numbered. God knows the number of days that we all have for us. But yours are now at an end. God has weighed and measured you. And you've been found wanting. Your character is empty. And God has divided your kingdom and given it to the Medes and to the Persians. It's pretty intense. Normally not the kind of thing that you get out of a king's court alive, having just said. And yet, strangely here, Daniel walks away. Position and honours given to him, despite having been a bearer of bad news. And that night, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. This young king who thought he was tougher than Nebuchadnezzar, than the great one, thought he was higher than the most high God, gets brought down abruptly. So what was this for? Like, like who was this story written for? I mean, if, when I think about books of the Bible, I don't know about you, but whenever I think about, like, say, the book of Genesis, and who was it written to, who originally was reading it, I think, well, people who are around at the time of Genesis, right? That makes kind of sense. But at the same time, if you stop and think about it, you think, well, hold on, that can't work out because the end of the book was actually written at the end of the, it was, was finished at the end of the exile, so it must have been written after the end of the exile because that's when it's reporting about. So the question is, who was this written for? It must be someone later than that. Who, 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 what kind of person? See, what pastor took the stories of Daniel and said, I've got to publish this? Because people have got to know. Why did he think it was so desperate that some people knew this story? Who were the people who desperately needed to hear this story? Well, it's, it's kind of clear that it was the people who lived after they'd returned from the exile. They'd left Babylon. Because, of course, as we've seen here, the, the God of heaven is the one who sees kingdoms come and go and will bring his people away from his, from his country when they need punishment and will bring them home when he wishes to. And so they are home, and yet still, these people, these Israelites, they're actually effectively still in exile. See, they're in the land, but what happens next is they're under Persian rule. Then they're under Greek kings, Alexander the Great. Then they're under the Greek warlords after the empire gets split up into four. Or, or the more brutal Romans. So who's reading this? 
people who are reading this are people who are hearing about wars on the news every night or rumors that there's a war coming to their doorstep. It was scary. Now, maybe you might find some of these things familiar for your life. Uh, These people were people who weren't in control of their politics the way that they would love to be. Other forces were in control. And the culture that they'd always known seems to be getting hit for curveball after curveball as the next generation, as the next, the next regime comes in and the culture is influenced by all these foreign elements that are just strange and hard to keep up with. Is this sounding familiar yet? Uh, the next generation under them seem to be under these new influences that their parents had never had to deal with. And so there's gaps in the generations. And so their worship life, their family worship life, always felt compromised by the culture that they're a part of. So much so that um, they felt that the, the religion of their day was so compromised and corrupted that they felt they couldn't go to the temple. Does that sound like anyone ever, has anyone ever said that to you about church? I don't trust organized religion, but I sort of I still like the idea of God. And yet always for these guys, someone was on the throne that they felt like they couldn't trust. So they're back in their homeland, sure, but they're not returned, they haven't returned to the blessing of being with God. They went back to a home, but to a home that still didn't feel like home. They had to deal with the turnover of empire after empire, king after king. I mean, it's, it's nearly as, as, as often a turnover as Australian politics, right? You know, backstab after backstab, but they actually use real knives. That's the only difference. So what does this mean for us then? For us who also, though we're home, I mean, I'm not. I grew up in Queensland. I've got no idea about how Tasmania works still. I'm working it out. Um, we're home, but, but we're not home. The culture isn't quite ours. We're in exile too, though it feels like it should feel like we're in home. What do we do? What do we do? Well, first thing is there's three things that I, want, that I think Daniel encourages us in. Three things Daniel encourages us in. The first one is that God will not be mocked. God won't ever end up looking the fool. If you see powerful people, and you might see that in our culture, just dining out on sacred things, mocking holy God, what do you think is going to happen in the long run? Are you, does it freak you out? Does it scare you? Does it concern you when a, a, a very basic thing, like a, a Christian set of ethics, is not just disagreed with, which we should expect that in our world, but thought of as an evil that actually should be purged for the good of society. Are you scared that you're having to raise your kids in an overtly sexualized culture? I mean, like vessels desecrated from a temple, little we've got little ones, a part of the temple of God, holy to him that the world is happy to defile for their profit. Know that God will not be mocked. Know it. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. God will not end up being humiliated and his ways won't end up being mocked. That's not how this story ends. Sure, we've got a, a God who is patient, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sins, not bringing judgment yet, and hopefully that's what happens in Nebuchadnezzar. It almost seems like it. It'd be really kind of cool to talk to Nebuchadnezzar in heaven if, he's, if he makes it there. It'd be, be beautiful to see how God made these, 
brought these harsh mercies and this long amount of patience, this um, lifetime of, of, of messing up and coming back to and recognizing God was in charge. But that, 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 that sort of short-term, that patience, in the fullness of time, all who mock God, anyone who profanes a sacred thing, will be weighed and will be measured. He will come in judgment. It'll be swift. It'll be summary. It won't be warning shots. Belshazzar had it. Tonight, your soul will be required of you, he was told. Now, I, I want to mix this up with a, a second thing that I think Daniel really teaches us here. It is God's just judgment. His fair judgment. Because I want you to notice the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar. You see, with, with Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't know the God of Israel. He, he didn't realize who it was that he'd been messing with. He didn't know who had come and stolen all of his stuff. And so God seems to deal with him very patiently, doesn't he? Daniel's almost sort of like this very slowly, slowly friendship evangelism with the king kind of guy thing going on here. And imploring him to take these warnings that God would send and to humble himself. And he even had to learn his lesson over and over again. He messed it, kept on messing it up. And Daniel seemed to be warm to him. But with Belshazzar, see, the thing with Belshazzar is he should have known better. He knew. He saw it. He, he metaphorically grew up in church. He knew what was going on. He knew who God was. God's judgment is measured to the individual. Um, come with me to Matthew 11. Um, it, hold on, let me see, uh, where are we? Oh, that one should have got changed to Matthew 11. I missed it, sorry about that. Um, if you want to look it up, Matthew 11, verse 20 to 24, it says there, I'll read it out for us. It's a verse that sounds at it always confused me and sounded really harsh until I realized it's actually full of mercy. Not that harshness is uh, something that isn't appropriate at times, and we see that here, but, but there's a mercy to it. Um, Matthew 11, verse 20. Then Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that I did in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, think Tyre and Sidon, think like just metaphorically the worst places. I won't come up with a Tasmanian equivalent because that would be disrespectful. But if, if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. I tell you, it'll be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you. You see... God actually, in his judgment, isn't flat and blanket. Right, I'm just going to slap everyone on the last day with the same thing. He actually is measured. He is just. He is fair. And he is right. And so I don't want you to be scared of your God in the wrong way. Don't be scared of judgment. You won't be sitting there on the last day thinking, Oh, God, um, that's a little bit rough. Um, I'm a little nervous about that one. We're going to be sitting there saying, wow, how right did you get that? You are more merciful and understood more things than I ever had. Wow. And the other thing is, you won't be sitting there saying, oh, God, no, that's wrong, God. 
That's wrong. You can't let that person have only that degree of punishment. That, 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 that does indignity to the victims of their crimes. You won't be saying that either. We'll be praising God because he takes into account all the circumstances and he judges justly and fairly. God's just, fair judgment. We see it here with Belshazzar and we'll see it on the last day. Third thing is, learn from history. Learn from history. We're about to finish up. You, you may have... Um, you may have uh, oh, hold on. I've missed a second. Uh, I want you to think back in your life. So let's say you're a, you're a Christian person here, or even if you're just a spiritual person, you feel like you've had an experience of the divine where you were really taught something. Can you, can you think that? Think back to the, a moment where God really taught you something in your life, in your heart. You were changed. Just grab onto that moment for a second. When the Holy Spirit taught you something, what was it? Don't, don't forget. Maybe you have started to forget that lesson. I have one that I remember for me, the moment when God taught me, and I've shared this story before, but when God taught me on this camp that my life was not about serving myself and it wouldn't make me happy to do so. My life had to be about serving other people. What was your thing that you, God taught you? Was it that he loves you despite your sin? Was it that he cares about you more deeply than you'd previously thought? What was it? That intimate thing that God taught you Hold on to it. Don't forget it. Bring it to mind. Remember it. There's a, there's a theology of remembering in the Bible, which is not just, oh, it happened to come to my mind, but I bring it to my mind. See, Belshazzar knew. He knew what God was like. He knew he was above all things. And he failed to remember, to bring it to his mind so it would change him. Whatever that lesson was, Remember. Now, there is one thing that's more important than others to remember, and you may have heard this, this line before. Um, if you have, just sort of you know, nod sagely if, you, if you've heard this one before. Uh, there was once a generation that believed and proclaimed the gospel, and the next generation after that, they assumed that that gospel was kind of true and, and lived a, a cultural version of its morals out, but because they weren't proclaiming it, the next generation after that ended up denying the gospel. And that's a pattern that often happens. You may have heard that said. Uh, we're now in the generation that has no idea what the gospel is at all uh, and uses morals that came from the Scripture to attack anyone who is still hanging on to other morals that come from Scripture. But the thing for us is we need to learn from history too. Uh, we need to hold on to the gospel. Don't be a Belshazzar who forgets the gospel and therefore falls into sin. The good news is that Jesus is king, and, and, and Paul tells us this in Acts 17 so beautifully, that Jesus is king and that through him, God will judge the world soon. The days are numbered for this earth, and yet there is this amnesty. There is this call to repent and to turn to him, to come to Jesus. That is the gospel. That Jesus is the king and he will judge, but he doesn't want any to perish. And he's asking all to come to him now. And he loves and is willing to accept any who will come to him. Don't forget history. God won't be mocked. His judgment is fair, not blanket. And we need to hold on to the gospel, to learn from history.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Daniel. We thank you for that, that mention that even though things might be hard for us in our workplace, in our life, that we might suffer or be scared of humiliation, that, Lord, humiliation is not the final result for Christians. It's not the final result for you, that you will not be mocked. And so, Father, help us to hang on to our history, to hang on to this rich history of Daniel, these things that happened and, Lord, that will in some way happen again, that you will come and judge the world and that those who are laughing in your face will be unable to keep doing so. And you will gather those who have humbled themselves, no matter how bad they have been, unto yourself, and that you'll be their home, and that we'll be with you then. Father, help us not to forget our history this week. In Jesus' name, amen.